Well, God's grace and mercy and peace is yours in Jesus Christ, our Savior. And there's an outline if you want to follow along on this uh, Pentecost Sunday. So it's been graduation season and uh, lots of graduations at all levels. So whether it was uh, the outpouring of massive cuteness with kindergartners, right? It's just amazing because of massive cuteness. And, uh, or it's middle school, right? Eighth graders. I see one there. Or whether there was high school or college. You got your college degree? You know, those are moments when you almost kind of wonder at those moments of development, stepping stones moments, where you kind of go, a kid might say to you, a person might say, so do I look different to you now? You know, do I look different? Or maybe it's after a wedding. Or maybe it's after a uh, birthday, 13th birthday. Do I look different to you now? I'm a teenager. Or I'm turn 18. Do I look different to you now? Or 21. Do I look different? Or 60. Do I look different to you? You know, and it's interesting. There's an old story that goes about a um, about a, a shark that was very young, and he was, and there was a whale, very old, wise whale that lived in the sea. And the shark was just all moving all the time, and he was frantic, and the whale just kind of moved along. And the shark came up to him, and he says, "He says I got a question for you. I hear there's this thing called the ocean." Can you point me to where it is? You're wise and you know the ways of things. You've been here for so long. Where's the ocean? And the whale says, well, you're, you're in it. He says, no, no. I hear that it's very, very special and it's very unique. And it's filled with all kinds of amazing things. Where is the ocean? And he says, you're in it. And this conversation goes on like this. And the shark just gets more and more irritated until finally he says, I guess you don't know. And off he goes. I'm afraid sometimes, Christians sometimes might be this way too. It's almost like, so do I, am I different now? Outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I got baptized last week. Do I look different to you now? I became a member. Do I look different now? I gave my heart to Jesus. Do I look different to you now? Here's the interesting thing. I had, I've had people over the years, I remember one guy, Chuck, he was in his 60s when we baptized him. And about a year later, he said to me, Pastor, I'm kind of troubled because, you know, for a year now, I've been wanting to, I was expecting on my baptism, like the heavens to open and a beam of light to come down and angels to sing. He said, it didn't happen. But he says, and I know I'm really not quite that silly, but he said, am I different now? And I said, you know, this is amazing because whether it's those graduates or whether you turn 13 or 18 or 21 or 60, no, you don't look different now, but you are different. You are. And that's what Pentecost is about. So when we ask the question, are you a Pentecostal people or are you a Pentecost people? The answer is a resounding yes. For example, every All Saints Day, I come in here and I say, who's a saint of God? And I want every hand to go shooting up. It's not because you have a list of good works or you've performed five publicly verified miracles. It does not matter. That's not the criteria. The criteria is the saints of God are those whom Jesus Christ has declared to be so. And you are the people of God, the saints of God. Sinner too, I got that piece, but I'm also a saint of God. And so in the same way, if I say to you, who can be absolutely certain? Is there anyone in the room who can be absolutely certain that if you died right now, you would be with the Lord? Amen. I I want every hand to go up. Because we can know, not because of what I have done, but because what he is and has done, that's Pentecost people. Not because I have somehow 
called upon the Spirit to act on my behalf, or somehow I have enticed the Holy Spirit to come and live in my heart. If you didn't know He was living there already, you weren't paying attention. It's like being in the ocean. Don't you know you're in the ocean? Don't you know that the Spirit is here? And so what we want to do is become aware of the Spirit in our life, of the Spirit who is constantly present, constantly calling. I love those words from our catechism. He calls, gathers, enlightens the whole Christian church on earth. The Holy Spirit is relentless and unceasing. It's not as if the Holy Spirit is sitting on pause or standby until you come to your senses in some way and hit the play button. He is already calling you here. I was just talking to a family in the back and I just said, you know you're here because of God. You're sitting here today because of the Holy Spirit. Whether we knew it or not, whether he invited him to do so, we gather in this place because God has called us here. So what does it mean? This is really what I want to do. Is say, what does it mean to be a Pentecost people? And we'll look at this Acts 2. Ruth, good job. Those are tricky words, tricky names. That's always the one. If you really want to check if your lay reader's prepared, you say, here, read this one. <laughs> and you see if they actually practiced ahead of time. Now, so, so you know the story pretty well, probably. But just in case, here's the deal. So just 50 days earlier, right, the, the, the disciples are huddled in a corner, terrified that the next knock on the door is going to be either the palace guard or the, or the priestly guard to come and haul them away. And here now they're standing out in the public in front of thousands of people and they're publicly proclaiming this Jesus Christ whom you crucified was the Messiah. God raised him from the dead. You know, the next thing we use it in our baptismal service, you know, they were cut to the heart. What should we do? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. And 3,000 of them were baptized on that day. 3,000. So it's a transformation, isn't it? Do you think Peter looked any different than he did when he was hiding in the corner? He didn't look any different, but he was different. Transformed by the Holy Spirit. We're longing to be transformed by the Holy Spirit as well. We are different, this Pentecost people. So Pentecost was a harvest festival, and you might say, that's weird, it's May. How do you get harvest in May? Well, in that Mediterranean climate, you had that first planting of barley, and it was really just a matter of weeks. It was weeks that that first came up, and they did that first barley cutting, and it was a chance for them to celebrate. In Judaism, it's called the Feast of Weeks is what it's called. We call it Pentecost because it's 50 days after Passover. Penta, okay, so five. 50 days after Pentecost. Ascension happened 40 days. Jesus ascends, and then he says, wait for power from on high. Just hang out. It's coming. And then 10 days later, on this festival, this Jewish festival, here's the cool thing. Now, here's an interesting thing. It's 50 days after Passover, and if you were a Jewish man in good standing and you were, you know, an active Jew in practicing your faith, there were three festivals you were required to go to. Two of them were Passover and this one, Feast of Weeks. And so if you came from like Rome or from Carthage, North Africa, or you came from Persia, Babylon, that area, if you came, because there were Jews scattered all over the world, if you made that trip, because remember, there are no $50 shuttles to Vegas, you, you, you know, so you, if you made that trip, you almost certainly 
went to Passover and then stayed. Now think about that. That's good perspective. Because the same people that were converted on Pentecost were almost certainly among those voices that cried out, crucify him. That's pretty powerful to me. So those, those same voices. So the Holy Spirit is in the transformation business. You may not look different, but you are different. And so what does it mean to be this uh, Pentecost people? So here's how he starts, right? When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Talking about the disciples. And it's not just 12 or 11. It's not just that group. There's a group of about 30. They even say maybe as many as 120. But certainly it was the apostles. Certainly it was the 11 all together. But it probably was that little bit bigger group of Christians too. 30, 120. That's the number that's used. So they were all together in one place. So, you know, I was reading some data on this, uh, on pandemic and stuff. And man, aren't there going to be a bunch of books that come out of this? And PhD studies. Because we're going to discover just how spotty things were and how we navigated. And information was properly shared, improperly shared. People made stuff up for their own advantage. People denied stuff or whatever. It's going to be wild, isn't it? It's going to be something. Ten years from now, five years from now, we're going to discover, oh boy, what a hot mess we were. But one of the things that is incontrovertible relates to generational things. uh, Do you know this? People that were born never knowing a world without the internet. Okay? Think of that. There's about two generations now. So they're they're younger millennials. And then Gen Y and Z, however you want to designate that. They have never known a time without the internet. Those two generations are considered, not considered, they are clearly the most connected generation through technology than any previous generation, by far, from the moment they were aware. And many parents put a smartphone in a five-year-old's hands, questionable if you ask me, but it's done. And so they have smartphones, they got a smartphone in their pocket, which is over a million times more powerful than the computing power that put men on the moon. And they have it in their pocket. From that time on, they are easily, far and away, by far, the most connected generations we have ever seen in the world's history. They are immediately and constantly, in an international way, global way, interconnected, potentially, to millions of people and certainly to dozens of people. So whether it's posting on Instagram or Snapchat or whether it's a TikTok video or If they're on Facebook or if they're emailing or texting or whatever they're doing, they're connected. But you know what we know? That same, those same generations are the least personally connected generations in the world's history. Isn't that an odd paradox? It's the strangest paradox. So they are constantly online, constantly interconnected through technological means, but personally the most isolated, separated group the world has ever seen. So for example, I, I found it interesting, even here at church and so forth, as I talk to people and in different churches and staff, the, the younger millennials I talked to and some of the Gen Z was like, wasn't the, wasn't the lockdown great? It was great, wasn't it? I loved it. I could get used to this. And I'm sitting there dying, just dying. Um, And it's interesting because we've developed, because they had their phones. 
They had their phone, they had their computer, they, they were connected, they thought. But what we saw, even among those two generations, was this rampant ex- increase in despair and anxiety and uh, coming out of isolation. It was fascinating to me. And I believe, I am, and you're, you've heard me talk about it already more than once, you're going to hear me keep talking about it, so get used to it, is that I am fundamentally convinced, God made us as social beings, first of all. It is not right for the, for the, for the dude to be alone. Dudes all know this, by the way. It is not good for the man to be alone. <laughs> I will make a helper suitable. And so we are made to be social beings, be fruitful and multiply. God made us into community beings, social beings. It's by God's design and intent. So it should come as no surprise that when we isolate ourselves or seek it out or find it the most comfortable place, it is not where God wants us to be. So I believe that the church has a tremendous opportunity here to bring together disparate people Again, I say this all the time. You look around the room and you go, would I hang out with these people? Probably not. But we do here. This is among, you think about it, socioeconomically, ways of people think, ways people vote. This is a diverse group. And it is good for us to be together. And so we're going to keep offering those opportunities. This is what it means to be a Pentecost people. Number one, they were all together. They were all together. Now, if you're watching online, I am not criticizing. Please don't get me wrong. There are times for health reasons and other reasons, it is important that we isolate. It's important that we protect. Don't get me wrong, but all things being equal, when we're able to do so, this is a mark of being a Pentecost people, is they were all together. See, they could have thought strategically, right? They could have said, this is not good. We shouldn't have all 11 of us in one room because, you know, what if they arrest us all at once? There'll be no more church. So, you know, let's scatter. You know, we'll put two of you over here, we'll put two over here, and we'll divide our resources. They could have thought strategic. That's not how they thought, because that's not how God built them. God built his people from the Old Testament on as the assembly of people, the great assembly. They were all together in one. So, number one, mark number one, is that, not, and you can't all be together all the time, right? I'm not an idiot. But we're going to give you lots of opportunities, starting next Sunday, one service, and we're bringing in pink boxes of joy. Do you know what that is? Anyone go to Amazing Glaze? Look, you guys are getting I expect free donuts for this. Okay? So, uh, right? Amazing Glaze. We call them here at Grace pink boxes of joy. So we're going to get pink boxes of joy and good coffee to get you to linger and to hang out and be together. In June, Pastor Simmons is going to come. And we're going to have a party. It's right for us to party, bringing on another pastor. I'm going to party more than you. It's going to be great, and so forth and so on. So we're going to give opportunity to be a Pentecost people, to be all together. That's the mark, number one. Number two, so this is a great story. So there's a judge who's got a case before him. It was a DUI, and the guy that got pulled over by the officer was really not in his, he was just really drunk, and so he resisted arrest, and he assaulted the officer. That's a serious offense. And so he went to trial, and the lawyer who was trying to convict him, the prosecutor, said needed to talk to the officer and say, you know, if, if we're sure, if we can verify that you are in uniform, right, that you were wearing a uniform, that goes a long way to showing that you were acting in proper authority and you did what you should do, you know, that kind of thing. So he asked him this question on the stand to, to just prove that. So the district attorney asked the officer on the witness stand, And how were you attired when you pulled the defendant over? Well, the witness looked at him and he goes, 
he, it's clear that he didn't understand what the district attorney had asked when he said attired. Well, everyone knew this but the district attorney. So the district attorney asked it again. He said in an irritated voice, and how were you attired when you pulled the defendant over? The witness was still puzzled. Say that again. How were you attired when you pulled the defendant over? And he says, I could just see the light bulb come in the officer's mind, and he proudly proclaimed, I was traveling on standard issue radial tires. <laughs> That's not funny. I thought that was funny. How are you attired? I need, I need Mooney and Fowler here. That's what I need. How are you attired? It's, what's interesting is, even in English, sometimes you're speaking a foreign language. When I, I taught at Concordia University, Portland, for several years when I was pastor in Portland, and the class that I taught was to all the people preparing to be pastors, teachers, DCEs, and I taught evangelism, how to share your faith. And it was interesting, because the premise of my whole class, as I built that class for the whole first week, I was trying to desperately convince my kid, these students, when you do evangelism, you have to learn a new language. It's like learning a foreign language. We have a language in church. It's a certain way of talking, a certain way of communicating. There is even church jargon. You know, stuff that doesn't make sense to anybody else. There are ways of talking. To be honest, you guys, this is why I especially try to talk the way I do. We don't have a pulpit. I'm not wearing a robe at this service. I just want to have a conversation with you. I just want to kind of, but I'm the only one talking, please. But it's a, I want to have a conversation with you. And so the idea here is you have to learn a whole new language when you step outside of these doors. And if you didn't realize that, that's what happens here. Because you know what most people think being a Pentecostal person is? means you speak in tongues. But get what this says here. Did you catch what it said on the day of Pentecost? It wasn't that they were speaking some gobbledygook that you needed someone to interpret. It wasn't an angelic language. It wasn't a special prayer language. When they spoke, what did they say, the audience? They were stunned because what did they say? These guys are talking and I understand them in my own language. In other words, they made the gospel understandable to me. And we'll come to the next part because they said, how can this be? Because these guys are just hicks. So he goes, that's, the, that's what this means, speaking another language. How do you make the gospel make sense to someone? Because I am guaranteeing you folks coming up to somebody and saying, God wants you to be in heaven for all eternity with you. And he is not going to bill you for it. It is absolutely a free gift. He did it just out of great and overwhelming love for you. He counts you as his child and he gave it to you as if you were his own child. Want that? And in this world, that does not compute. What's the catch? You're going to get me later. You're going to ask for my money, I bet. You're going to tell me I need to serve on some committee or teach Sunday school. You're going to... No, we're not. No, we're not. It's just Jesus. It does not compute. You've got to learn a new language. It's a new language. How do you learn to speak that language to people who are desperately in need? And so what's interesting is, so all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them, so that they could understand. Third thing is this. So this is the tricky one. So when they start speaking, they get too big, they get attacked twice, don't they? The first one is, how can this be? Because these guys are from Galilee, which means they must be stupid. 
They must not have an education. That's what they're saying. They've got to be unlearned men. They say this about the disciples later, too, when they stand before the Jewish ruling council. And the council is stunned because they go, when they see that they, these guys had never been to college, that's kind of what they say. These guys had never really been to school. They were stunned. And so, number one, they say, how can this be? These guys are stupid. And then the other one is, by the way, Christians ever get called stupid? And the other one is, they're loaded. They're drunk. So those are the two. It can't possibly be that you have half a brain or that you might be telling the truth. So you're stupid or drunk. Do you like being accused of that? What I'm telling you is, Pentecost people are also open to attack. And this is the one that's hard to preach and teach. Because we don't want that, do we? I don't want that. Um, I, I, I serve on several boards, and I am sometimes among the more aggressive people on the board. And when I say aggressive, it doesn't mean picking fights. But I get frustrated with boards that don't act. I get frustrated with boards that like to just hear the sound of their own voice. I, I get frustrated with that. I get frustrated at missed opportunities. I get frustrated at making excuses for not standing up for something for which we know will impact the lives of people for all eternity. All eternity. And so I get frustrated there. Because every once in a while I'll be a little bit aggressive and I'll have members who say, oh, we don't want to be combative or adversarial. And I ask this question, is there nothing in this world for which you are willing to fight? There are for me. And I hate fighting. It's not about fighting. But are there things in this world for which you're willing to take a stand? And to be counted. Because when you take a stand in this world, you're open to attack. That is the truth. And that's what they do. That's what the disciples do. They take a stand. Where they were hiding, now they stand. They're not, they're not combative. They take a stand. You know, it's interesting. Before, before the United States entered World War II, and forgive me that this sounds like ancient history. I find it fascinating. But before World War II... Hundreds of thousands of tons of U.S. cargo and uh, shipping were sunk in the Atlantic Ocean in particular by U-boats and other bad players long before we ever declared war out of the Pearl Harbor attack. And the reason why was this. Even though the United States had not done it publicly, we stood with Britain. We stood with them. And when it became formal, it got fierce. It got deadly but we took a stand. There are some things worth fighting for, some things worth taking a stand for, and here's the neat thing about this. When we are asked as a Pentecost people to take a stand, we don't stand alone. Because the disciples know that Jesus Christ on a lonely hill in the center of Jerusalem took a stand for them, that he stood with them then also, and that the Spirit of God was building a foundation which could not be shaken. I'm just telling you, folks, being a Pentecost people not, doesn't mean picking fights. It doesn't mean being wee, weird. And it doesn't mean being mean. It means I'm going to stand with my Jesus. And that's what the disciples end up doing over time. You know, we have to obey God rather than men. So, for instance, even here, through all the pandemic, I discussed it often with my team, with the staff. I discussed it with elders. 
And I said, what would be the line which we would not cross, I mean, which we would have to cross in defiance of the government? And it would be this, if we were forbidden to proclaim the name of Jesus in the gospel, if we were forbidden to do that, I would have done it. And you take the consequence. There are some things for which we take a stand, but I don't stand alone. It's because Christ has already taken that stand. And so Pentecost people say, what is Jesus standing for? We are going to stand for that as well. Whether it's tenderness, gentleness, and reconciliation, or whether it's truth, or whether it's mercy, whatever that is, I'm going to stand where Jesus is standing. Because Jesus stands with us. But you're open to attack. The fourth thing is this. So there's this church, downtown church. It goes up in a blaze. It's caught fire, and all the fire trucks are coming It's a huge downtown church, and it's just a big conflagration, and the place is burning like crazy. And so um, people gather. Some of them are members. Some of them are neighbors. And there's these two guys. They live next to each other. And the one guy was a member of the church, and the other guy was his neighbor, who he had been asking to come to church for years and years, and he always said no. And so you know what he says to the guy who's standing next to him? He says, so, first time at church? And the other guy says, yeah. First time I've ever seen the church on fire. That's an interesting comment, isn't it? When the church is just about itself and just about keeping the doors open and just about serving itself, that is not a church on fire. That is not a Pentecost church. Number four is this. They were all empowered by the Holy Spirit. Just so we can be very clear about this. I may stand up here and preach to you and teach and visit you in the hospital and baptize, give you Holy Communion and so forth, and I wear this, funk, this weird shirt and uh, so forth, I am just, I am you. You've asked me to do this. I'm no different. We don't have a priesthood class. We don't have a separate class of citizen. I'm just you. We're all empowered by the Holy Spirit. Being a Pentecost people means it's not just the pastor who does the proclaiming, the witnessing, the modeling, the sharing. I may do it differently than you, But every one of us is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. I love it. Young, old, male, female, all of us together, bearing witness to the Christ who lives in us and the Christ who stands with us. We're all powered by the Holy Spirit. And so are you a Pentecostal? I mean, that's kind of this idea. Are you a Pentecostal? Because this is what it means to be driven by the Holy Spirit. People of the Word, because the Holy Spirit works in the Word. People of faith, because the Holy Spirit is the author of faith. But ultimately, people of Jesus Christ, because it's Christ of whom the Holy Spirit speaks. That's the last point. Pentecostal people are a people focused on Christ. You know, Jesus tells his disciples many times, I know you're upset that I'm going. I keep telling you I'm going to go, and you're upset. Your hearts are troubled and you're discouraged and disappointed. But Jesus has to say to to them over and over again, I have to go. This was part of God's plan. In the incarnation, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, humbled himself, limited himself to being a human being. So he couldn't be in all places at once. He couldn't see all things. He couldn't be. He was limited in his humanity. So he says, please, I did that so I could die and rise again. So you had the absolute victory over sin and death, which is required. You needed that. That's it. It's the only thing that would save you. But now I have to go because I am longing for that which I accomplished to live in every human heart. 
And so I go so that the Holy Spirit can come. You know, when we pray the Lord's Prayer and we pray this, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. I hope you know we aren't praying that all the, all the elected officials in the United States would be Christian. That is not what that prayer means. Good luck with that, by the way. Talk about clay feet. And so if, you want, if, if that's your goal, no, no. The whole point is just what Jesus is doing and what Pentecost is doing in which the Holy Spirit is longing to make this the temple. Not a temple on a hill. Not a building in which we're sitting. Not a temple made of stone by human hands. But a temple forged in the image of God dwelt within by the power and presence of Christ. That was his goal. That you would be the temple of God. That Christ would rule in your heart. So here's the cool thing. This last point, which is we're focused on Christ. We often think that the the Pentecost is all about the Holy Spirit. And it's cool to talk that way. But if the Holy Spirit was here, the Holy Spirit would say, absolutely not. It is not about me. Because all the Holy Spirit wants it to be about is Christ. Is Christ. He's saying, I got to get out of the way. And I, so that that which I've taught you about Christ can live in you. And that is always the message of every Sunday, of every day, <clears throat> is Christ. May he be glorified. Amen.